Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats here at National Review, a presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, and find all of our episodes, past, present, future, at nationalreview.com. Our first episode of 2018, this is the show where we talk to people who are in politics, around politics, analyzing politics, about no politics whatsoever, but only about their favorite bands, their favorite music. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And hopefully having a very Merry Christmas and a good New Year so far, my tag team partner each and every week, it is Jeff Blair standing by. Jeff. Well, it's a pleasure to be here again in the new year for Political Beats. I've been very busy. I enrolled in a sculpture course at St. Martin's College recently. I've been studying the common people. I, I feel like I have a good sense of who they are and how they are, and I, 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 kinda, I guess I want to be like them, be with them, perhaps maybe even sleep with them, but I'm dealing with these things as they come. <laughs> well, well, you've got some time this year to figure those things out. And... You can reach Jeff online on Twitter at EsotericCD. Our guest this week is a columnist at the New York Post and elsewhere. You can follow her on Twitter at Carol with a K, K-A-R-O-L. It's Carol Markowitz. Carol, welcome and thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Uh, so before we introduce uh, the band that you have chosen to speak about today, uh, we first ask you, Carol, what is your political beat? How are you involved in this political ecosystem? Um, I write mostly about the cultural effects of politics, but I do wade into general politics sometimes. Um, I write for the New York Post every week on Mondays, and then I also write for Fox News sometimes, um, for USA Today, and a bunch of other places. So it's a wide-ranging beat. And Carol has uh, has picked a band for this uh, this 19th episode of Political Beats. We were on a bit of an English kick here. We had Oasis a few weeks ago with uh, Stephen Miller. And, and now we talk about another English band. Uh, kind of a 10 to 12 year overnight success, if you want to put it that way. They took a long time to kind of figure out what they were going to be and who they were going to be. And just one main uh, member from start to finish. That's a man named Jarvis Cocker, who you might be familiar with. And this is the band Pulp. Carol, you have chosen Pulp for us to talk about today on the show. So we open the floor to you and ask you to tell us how did you get into the band? Why do you love them so? Why should other people care about Pulp? Okay. Yeah. Um, I studied abroad in Scotland in the mid-90s. I... A lot of people study abroad in like London or Edinburgh, but I ended up in a tiny town in the north of Scotland called Forest. Um, nobody's ever heard of it. It's like 10,000 people. But I had desperately wanted to live in Scotland. And my college, Northeastern in Boston, didn't have a study abroad program there. So I just I walked around constantly wanting Scotland, dreaming of Scotland. I had visited right after I had graduated high school. And I just loved it. I, everything about it spoke to me. Um, so after my first year of college, I was kind of miserable in Boston. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I just I didn't feel like I quite belonged in Boston. And uh, I just kept 
thinking I want to move to Scotland. And then one day I'm walking around my campus and I see a sign study in Scotland. And it was like the heavens had opened up. I was so excited <laughs> about it. Uh, it turned out to be a program on a commune. The area, that Northern Scotland area has a very large, very popular commune called the Finhorn Foundation. And it didn't matter to me. I was moving to Scotland and I didn't care what I was going to do. So I moved to this commune and I was openly conservative while I lived there. And, you know, they were minorly questioning why I was there, but I, you know, just wanted to be in Scotland and I didn't care. So I moved there in January of 1996 and different class had come out about two months before I got there. And it was just everywhere. You, you go to a club on a Saturday night and the last song, you know, before they turn on the lights is Disco 2000 and the whole place sings along. Oh, yeah. so magical they're all like you know let's all meet up in the year 2000 won't it be strange to see you know us fully grown and a car will drive by and you can hear sorted for ease and whiz out the window mm. and it was just such a great time to be in britain and to discover a band like pulp and the best part about the discovery was while they were brand new to me i had never heard of them um they had this amazing discography before before different class and so i got to go through all of that and discover his and hers and um you know freaks and all their other albums and i i quite love them so i fell into this band fell in love with jarvis cocker i just thought he was like the sexiest thing ever um and it was just you know a great time to to love music and be in britain and Pulp. For me, pulp was something uh, I guess you know experienced in a very different way from from across the pond here in the United States. Uh, I was talking about this actually with Stephen the other day when we were doing Oasis. You know, it, it, I I went to an arty public magnet school, and so you know I was the theater kid, and you know the theater kids were all in the theater, and the music kids were all into Radiohead. Uh, for the other Brit pops, you know, the, the big thing was uh, Blur versus Oasis, and I was a Blur guy over an Oasis guy for sure, as we discussed in that episode. Yeah, <laughs> although I've, I've since then come to really appreciate Oasis. But the band that I ended up having, I guess, even more than Radiohead at the time, uh, a very weird effect upon me uh, in my last two years of high school, which would have been 97, 98, um, was Pulp. And, you know, I can thank uh, one person in particular for that. I, I don't know if Carly Goodman is out there listening somewhere, but <laughs> she was the, the classic example of, of an American pulp fan from that era. She was, you know, very arty, kind of a, 
you know, a, a, a willowy, thin, very arty, odd chick who was deeply into British music. She idolized Jarvis Cocker. I mean, somewhere in her mind, I'm sure she fantasized about dating Jarvis Cocker because that was like basically her ideal of like the most attractive man in the world. And I was yeah. nothing like that, you know. And I could get it. You know, he has that sort of world weary, you know, stick figure thing. He looks both frail but has a very assured way of carrying himself. And so like there would be so many nights, you know, where like me and a bunch of our friends and she was among that group of friends that I was with would like, you know, sit like late at night alone uh, in a darkened basement, you know, hanging out and, you know, playing different class. And of course, just like you, every single person was fascinated. We all hung on to Disco 2000. That one in particular meant a lot to me at the time. I remember, you know, I had my own series of unrequited crushes in high school, and, and I was definitely an awkward kid back then, too. So every lyric of that song hit me like a sledgehammer to the head, you know, like, you know, I was, you know, let's all meet up in the year 2000. Won't it be strange when we're all fully grown? Of course, the irony is that in the year 2000, we were 20 years old, right? <laughs> not, exactly, not exactly fully grown in, in any way, but uh, still, it had that sense of like, okay, yeah. Things may not be great now, but they're going to get better later on. And in the mean, in the meantime, it's again another another lyric from that album, "Misshapes," that always meant a lot to us too. We would always dance around like idiots to, you know, like, you know, we, you know, we won't use guns, we won't use bombs. We use the one thing we've got more of. That's our minds. <laughs> that's, we, we, that always made me cringe. <laughs> yeah, you know, he makes Jarvis Cocker cringe too. He is not a fan of that song. In fact, he made it a point to exclude it from their greatest hits album. But even the fact that it's just so on the nose, I don't know. There was something about it that, that seemed to speak to me, especially as somebody who was, you know, kind of maladjusted as a kid. back and I got into all their albums and then we all you know one of us got a copy of that countdown double CD that was released I think to capitalize upon the popularity of different class which is all the early pulp stuff and we were kind of gobsmacked at how not nearly as good it was and how it represented their first decade and we found out there was an entire prehistory to this band that we'd know nothing about um Pulp is one of those groups that took such a long time to put out albums that they never really kind of fully capitalized upon their moment in Britpop. But their their music from the 90s all the way up to the end uh, with We Love Life, I think, is, is, is uniformly superb. And even a lot of their earlier stuff is really interesting, too. And you really can't go wrong talking about a band that probably means more in the United Kingdom, at least, uh, than pretty much any other group of the 1990s with the exception of Oasis. I think Oasis, you know, sort of captured that moment for the Yabos and not even just the Yabos, but just the average beer drinking, you know, British guy, but you know, all the arty people and definitely, 
you know, as a huge part of sort of you know popular culture. Pulp defined it particularly in that period, from his and hers to uh, this is hardcore, where it seemed like they had their finger on the pulse of everything that was happening with sort of you know urban London-centric culture in that country. And it's something that doesn't necessarily always translate as well to America, but it should because this music is fantastic. Jarvis Cocker is one of the most engaging lyricists uh, of that era, of more or less any era. And he writes about so many different scenarios, particularly social scenarios, with such just almost abrasive acumen that uh, it's impossible not to look back on this stuff and be fascinated by it. Indeed. And this is a band, uh, you know, that I uh, largely had at arm's length for no particular reason uh, during the time they were actually putting out music. And so I, I was I was uh, catching up on a whole lot of their discography in the weeks leading up to this uh, this taping of, of Political Beats. And one thing I certainly, I think, will say is, uh, heck, even going back to Oasis, uh, as a, a point uh, once again, you know, Oasis's lyrics are, 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 are throwaway in many, many cases. They talk a lot about the song and the rhythm and the melody. And certainly that, that is uh, true with Pulp, too, in terms of you, you talk about the songs. But I will probably spend as much, if not more, time talking about the lyrics of these Pulp songs than I will of any band, any artist that we've done thus far. Uh, I was so struck by how strong of a lyricist uh, Jarvis Cocker is and, and was uh, on virtually all of these pulp albums. And, and um, an evocative lyric, lyricist, too, meaning I, when, I, when I hear the song and hear the lyrics, it, I, I, I end up thinking of other things, which I, I love when, when a lyricist and a writer can kind of put that seed into your mind and, and, and force you into, into other areas. And I think that happened to me with a lot of these pulp uh, songs and albums that we'll discuss during the uh, uh, during during the show. But we start way back when, uh, I, I guess in uh, 1983, the the debut album for pulp is an album called It, and um, we can get more into it. But they then disbanded. Jarvis Cocker put everybody back together for a second album, Freaks. Very different albums. Neither met with a whole lot of success. Both are, uh, I don't want to say largely dismissed, but largely not talked about as being classic albums, certainly from the pulp discography. Um, what do we take away from these guys? I'd say, I'll tell you this. First of all, pulp would never have become the pulp that they became in the 1990s without that incredibly long era spent toiling in obscurity in the wilderness. There's, there's no pulp without Jarvis Cocker like, trying desperately to be a musician and to make it as a rock star, sort of thinking, well, I've got what it takes. I've got the rock star moves, even though he didn't. He was always a, like a tall, gangly nerd. <laughs> um, but you know, he had, he had a, a belief in himself and an ethos that persisted even through Pulp didn't just begin in 1983. Their first recordings are in like 1981. Yeah. They have a Peel session from 1981. From 1981 to 1993, they didn't exist basically, except as you know, a, a very obscure local Sheffield band. But Cocker just kept plugging along, and that first album, the first album is called It. It, it was it was a mini album really. In 1983, the, the 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 name comes from literally the word pulp, and then the word it. Get it? Pulp it. Stupid pun. Not exactly the sort of thing that uh, <laughs> is going to go down in the annals of great puns. Um, but the interesting thing about it is how completely different it is from everything else Pulp did in their career until you get to the end of their career, which I'll get to later on. Uh, this is folk rock. 
This is literally just sort of gentle, kind of uh, very, you know, almost inoffensive with some, some slightly dark tinges to the lyrics. Very gentle folk rock. Has There's no synthesizer. There's no dance music. There's, there's nothing of the sort of, you know, high London chic culture or even low Sheffield working class narratives. It's also sort of like a young boy's fantasy. This is almost reminds me of like when Genesis. This is a very different comparison, but you know, Genesis, one of the most famous prog rock bands of all time, you know, started as like five kids in a public school, uh, you know, like playing music as sixteen-year-olds and like you know, recording in their off time. Very different, you know, class situation. Very different musical outcome, but it's the same basic idea. Like this is a kid making music for himself and trying to become something big with it. He even got a break from John Peel to record that first session. But nothing really came much of it. I that's not a shame given how much they would evolve into something better and totally different after this. But I've always kind of I never had an objection to it while it plays. There's nothing on this album that I would single out as being a must hear uh, truly an all-time pulp classic. There's really nothing on this album I dislike either. The stuff I dislike by pulp comes kind of in this mid-80s period, which we'll get to in a second. Mm-hmm. I kind of like these songs. I like I like uh, My Lighthouse quite a bit. Right. I like was it Wishful Thinking, I think, is a very pretty song. I also really like Blue Girls. But these are all kind of like quiet, gentle songs, and it's almost touching it, it it's very amusing to see you know the origins of pulp and realize that you know there was none of this you know ambitious social commentary going on it was just like a kid in his attic playing music yeah i you know i have to partly disagree with you because i don't think it is so wildly different it is musically wildly different i absolutely give you that that's where we agree but lyrically i, I don't see that it's so different from the kind of stuff that they would do later i mean my lighthouse could just as easily be on separations or on any of their later albums i think that's a very classic pulp song I don't see it as as super different um, than the rest of their later songs. Like Little Girl with Blue Eyes from the Masters of the Universe. I mean, that could just as easily be on different class. Um, And I think that part of like their thing is like this tongue-in-cheek, funny, dark lyrics. And that exists on it already, even though the music was pretty different. And for me, I went back and I... uh, uh listen to these and, and uh, I, I didn't take a lot away from, from freaks necessarily, but mm-hmm. from it, there's a couple of songs that I actually like quite a bit. You both have mentioned my lighthouse, which is I believe the first track on that album. And that is a nice song. It's a pleasant song. Yeah. It is inoffensive as, as Jeff said, and there's not, you know, synths per se, but there's like, I, I think it is a synth or it makes it sound like almost like a kid's keyboard kind of solo in my lighthouse that is very pretty. And there's a, a second song deeper on the album called uh, Love Love, which has mm-hmm. almost this like New Orleans jazz feel to it a bit in, in the production. I like that song too. Nothing groundbreaking or earth shaking, but uh, it's it's good stuff. I have to agree. Uh, Freaks is my least favorite pulp album. I, you know, I like I Want You and uh, 
the other one being followed home. But the rest of it, I could sort of take or leave. I've got I've got very little time for Freaks. You know, Freaks. There are two albums here actually that sort of deserve to be spoken of at the same time. There's Freaks, and then there's a compilation album that was released much later called Masters of the Universe, mm -hmm. which is all the non-album singles that Pulp released around this time. So you got to understand. So Jarvis Cocker puts out this first album. None of the other band members really stay on with the group. Uh, they all end up falling away. Because, you know, the album did nothing. It made no impact. And, you know, these people just said, like, hey, you know, I'm going to go to college. And I think, you know, Cocker himself, you know, sort of vacillated very wildly between, you know, saying, well, okay, do I try to keep on doing this, being a musician, or do I just pack it all in and, and decide to go study sculpture at St. Martin's College, which he actually did for a period of time in the late 80s when he was thinking, well, this isn't going to amount to anything. Um, but the real thing about that early, that mid-period in the 80s that matters is Pulp acquired its first key members, aside from Cocker. Mm -hmm. uh, you had uh, uh, Candida Doyle, uh, who plays keyboards. Just, I think, in my opinion, the most important member of Pulp, other than Cocker himself. Uh, she uh, played the synthesizers and the keyboards. And you know her early synth tones, I am not a fan of. Uh, she's one of those <laughs> people, you can just see the way she grew as a stylist, as a, as a writer. She wrote a lot of the melodies for a lot of their great songs. And also as a colorist, you know, you know, maybe being able to afford better equipment. But the early synth sounds on this very synth-based band seem like really cheap-sounding Depeche Mode. And, and it really comes to a head on Masters of the Universe, which is the non-album singles from like 84, 85, 86, 87. And then Freaks, which again, I will say this is – those two are my least favorite albums I can find something good to say about it. I can definitely find a lot of good things to say about separations, but I got no time for like dogs are everywhere or they suffocate <laughs> at night or, you know, anything on, on freaks really. I feel it seems to be mostly gormless mush, you know, being followed home is kind of interesting. Masters mm -hmm. of the universe is kind of interesting beyond that. I just think there's nothing here that I don't think anyone needs to hear again. I, I always consider this to be a trap album in the sense that when I would go to look for, Oh, hey, what kind of pulp things are out there in the racks at Best Buy, <laughs> you know, in the nineties, they would have this there. And of course it'd be like three copies of it because nobody right. would buy it. And I was like, Oh, okay, <laughs> I'll check this out. And then I got home and I played it. And I was like, damn it. I was fooled. <laughs> this is not a good album. This is a terrible album. And I understood when I heard this why it took them so long to kind of uh, figure out who they wanted to be. They were definitely heading towards a darker, kind of a gothier synth tone. And they kept a lot of that gothic element all the way to the end of their career. But they didn't really know how to harness it yet. This is like you can hear all these sort of inchoate elements to the band's sound. The synths, Jarvis Cocker's tendency towards these dark lyrics and the, the, the willingness to rant to go on these long sort of spoken word rants mm -hmm. um but there's there's no there's no maturity there's no ability to ha harness these skills into something that it's like a coherent concise pop song or a really great tableau it's just kind of a mess uh, i mean and if anybody wants to disagree with me this is your time to do it <laughs> <laughs> i think freaks is the one that we can all you know say was pretty bad yeah but i you know again no freaks like i i do occasionally put freaks on yeah, yeah you know not that often um but it absolutely – I like that there's another Pulp album that exists even if I don't think it's that great. Well, this brings us to a very weird record. Uh, it's Separations. They recorded this album in 1990, 1989. So you got to understand they'd been gigging on and off, you know, trying to sort of make 
Make Enough Scratch to Keep Going as a band, mm -hmm. uh, hadn't really had much success. At this point, you've got a lot of the key members in the group. Candida Doyle is still a part of the group. Russell Sr. on guitars brings a kind of an avant-garde sensibility. He also plays violins, uh, which will show up on some of these tracks on separations. Um, then you get... Um, you get uh, Nick Banks on drums, and then finally is on bass. Um, uh, geez, he just produced the last Arcade Fire album. Why can't I remember his name? I'm going to feel very, very bad about this when the time comes. Uh, uh, but anyways, you get the, basically the complete band is now – Steve Mackey, yeah. that was his name. Yeah. The complete band is now in place, and they record an album. Still, Jarvis isn't sure whether this is really going to work out. He's been taking classes on and off, like night school and things like that in London, sort of in his spare time. That's how much free time he has. They record <laughs> separations, and it's deeply influenced by the new – um, you know the house movement and the the new dance movements, the especially stuff by the Happy Mondays and by the most recent New Order record technique mm. that had come out in 1989. This is the first, I think, real pulp album, at least in terms of sounding like pulp would sound in the 90s when they later on made it big. And the perverse thing about it is that it was held in the can for two years. They recorded it; they couldn't get it released for two years. 1991 is when it came out, but it's really a product of the 80s. Separation is one of those records that you know, pulp fans will know. No one else has ever heard of, but I think it's the first time they actually show real talent. Some people even consider this to be their true debut album. What are your thoughts? Let me, I'll jump in because I think Jeff likes this more than I do, so I, I will kind of put my two cents in here, which is um, this is not the sound of the band that I love. Um, you know, there's you mentioned the, the the New Order record around the time. Yeah, I hear that. I even hear like a little like early Nine Inch Nails maybe too, on some of the tracks. Um, but it it sounds a little dated to me. I think the first half is pretty uninspiring outside of maybe Love Is Blind. Countdown's the big key track uh, for me on this album. So the disco kind of groove to it, about halfway through, really jumps to life. I think Countdown anchors the record. That will, I'm sure, be uh, uh, argued with by people who like the, I think, the following track, which is My Legendary Girlfriend. And that's one where if you do a little, uh, it was, anytime you read about Pulp, it says it was named the NME Track of the Week, and it helped launch them. I, get it, I, I gave this a lot of chances, guys. I don't like My Legendary Girlfriend, like, at all. It, ah. would, it would be like a skip track as I'm going through the album. So I, I, I certainly have, a, I think, a differing opinion than many Pulp fans about My Legendary Girlfriend. Uh, but the you know the album in whole uh, is I want to say somewhat middling to me in that I again I think the first half is 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 not so great I hear some things that that you might hear when we get to the next uh, release the, uh, the collection of the B sides that are uh, reflected there but this is not anywhere near my favorite uh, pulp album. Carol. Yeah, you know, Countdown and My Legendary Girlfriend are my two favorite songs on the album, um, but I agree that it doesn't have the same sound as 
different class, for example. Um, so and synth I, I, tones. Yeah, they don't have the synth tones yet. It might be much more acoustic. Again, I, I see it and separations as sort of like the same type of music, which is, it, it might not be the same music. Yeah, I actually should clarify that. It's it's the same lyrically. Lyrically, they, they have a lot in common to me. Legendary Girlfriend, My Lighthouse, like I, they're, they're in the same realm to me. Um, and, you know, the... The music you can, it, I think if you're listening, I think it's so interesting that Scott, um, you said that you had just recently listened to all this stuff for the first time. And I'm wondering what I would think of it if I had time, but my the experience of falling deeply in love with different class and then working backwards and just seeing that there's more pulp music. And even if it's not quite the same, and even if it's not quite as good, mm-hmm. at least it exists. I, I, I feel like that was the you know, a really great discovery when I'm 20 because <laughs> it just opened up all of this this new music to me. And again, I, I don't know what I would think of separations right now. If I listen to Countdown for the first time, I feel like I'd be like, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> but I love Countdown. I think it's one of their classic songs. Well, my thoughts on separations are, I, I don't know if I would call it the most underrated pulp album out there because I actually think We Love Life is the most underrated pulp album simply relative to its actual quality. But I think this is a very underrated pulp album. Um, uh, I think, as I just rudely interrupted Carol to say, uh, the real problem with it, and I think the reason that people who come back to it from hearing pulp in the 90s and react poorly to it, the first thing uh, you're going to hear are the synth tones, especially if you start off with that the single that was released around this time called Death Goes to the Disco, which I think is a pretty good song. But you hear very chintzy synthesizers, and you, this is you know, played by Doyle, and you just think, oh, come on, what are these? Is this is five-year-olds playing Casio keyboards in their bedrooms, it doesn't have a very good sound, something that was immediately cured uh, the next time they went out to record. I don't know if they bought better equipment or if they got a smarter producer or if they just figured something out about how they wanted to sound. So once you get over the fact that the synthesizers are just really not as subtle and not as well-layered as they would be, especially for a band that was aspiring to sort of move into a more dance-based space, these songs are pretty well written and they really do end up seeming like early blueprints for everything that you would hear on his and hers and on different class. First half of the album is more ballad based. It's more traditional song structure. I think love is blind is good, but I really like, don't you want me anymore? And she's dead. Um, but the second half is the dancey stuff. It's more of the house stuff. It's more of the sort of pseudo happy Monday stuff. And there you have Countdown. You have My Legendary Girlfriend. And I also like Death, too. The only thing I don't like, I like My Legendary Girlfriend. Scott, I understand exactly why you don't. <laughs> I'm not going to criticize you for hating it. I can see it being a crashing bore to somebody who wasn't sort of born and raised in that sort of that sort of dance milieu the way I kind of have yeah. been steeped for years. My
so I love that song. The one I really don't like is the one that's the Russell Senior experiment, there, mm-hmm. which is "This House Is Condemned." It's the last <laughs> song on the album. It, it's awful. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's awful. It's just eight minutes of kind of, you know, you know, again, repetitive noise. The only song on the album that doesn't have a melody or doesn't have a structure to speak of, and I think everybody kind of, I think that's why they put it at the end. They kind of understood that it wasn't really, you know, uh, a song to be, you know, forefronted or featured. Uh, but again, I, I find myself thinking that it's amazing that after these three albums, four if you count Masters of the Universe and all the various nine-album singles, this band still had the wherewithal to keep pushing onwards and to keep continuing. I'm not sure how they found the the, the sort of strength of mind to do it. Maybe it's because they were a regional success. Maybe it's because Jarvis Cocker was just determined to not go and become like you know a guy pushing. Uh, paper in, in an office block somewhere. I don't know what it is, but whatever it was, I'm so thankful for it because suddenly, as if almost they were struck by lightning, what happens next is they get signed to a small label called Gift. Gift later gets bought out by Island Records when they move on to that. And they put out a series of singles that are the birthplace of modern pulp. The beginning of the pulp as we know them, pulp as we love them, pulp as we treasure them. And I think one of the tragedies is that people who like different class, people who like this is hardcore or know his and hers, don't know the gift recordings, which is a CD that combines three of their singles from 1992, 1993, uh, one of which was actually ended up going on to his and hers called Babies, Mm -hmm. uh, that is as good as anything they ever did. I cannot say enough good things about the gift recordings. I even like the way it's arranged. It's roughly chronological, but it opens with this sort of moody B-side called Space, which, again, is one of my favorite Jarvis Cocker lines right at the beginning. It sounds like, you know, you're out floating in the cosmos and there's all this synth noises in the background. It sounds kind of like a, like a 60s Twilight Zone, like, and then Jarvis Cocker comes in and says, you said you wanted some space. Well, is this enough for you? As, as if he's blasted his faithless ex-girlfriend out into the out into the Milky Way or something like that. And then, you know, it's a long monologue that goes into a little cheesy synth number at the end. Uh, and that's great. That still sounds a little bit like earlier pulp, like Separations era pulp. But then right after that, it's uh, maybe one of the best songs they've ever did. Certainly one of my five favorite pulp songs of all time. It was their first major single. It's called OU, Gone, Gone. Um, I can't say enough good things about this. It's much more simple, both lyrically and melodically, than some of their later bigger hits like Common People or Disco 2000. But it is one of the most amazingly well-layered synth productions, and it just has the, the simplicity of the way those chords just build and build and build. It shows that they had mastered dynamics. They had mastered the ability to absolutely grip you by your lapels and say, listen, we learned how to structure a song. Mm-hmm. We spent 10 years doing it. It took us a friggin' decade, but we learned how to put together a catchy hit single. I love Ogie. Just something you do to 
And I love all the other ones on this as well. I love the B-sides, uh, you know, the Sheffield Sex City narrative, which is basically Candida Doyle reading excerpts from a, you know, a, a dime store porn novel <laughs> as like various music plays in the background. I love the whole Inside Susan three-part sequence. Mm-hmm. I like Stylerock, Nights of Suburbia. And, of course, the two singles, Babies and Razzmatazz, are both classics, and they both made it onto the best of album as well. Oh, you didn't make it onto the best of album for no reason I can understand. I recommend this so highly. Find this song, people. Uh, I, I want to take two seconds before I give some thoughts and 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 just uh, underline something Carol said because it, it like made my heart jump I had almost forgotten the feeling. You know, when we were young uh, and, and you fell in love with a band, you couldn't go to the internet and, f- and like, see, oh, they have six more albums or they, there's this song and I want to hear it on YouTube. And it, you had to figure out a way to find it. And that was either like going to the library. I would go, I would go to the library. I like the Rolling Stone uh, Guide to Music where they would have all these albums ranked and say, here are the ones you should listen to. Or you just go to the record store and see what's available. But that feeling, when you have found a band that you love, and all of a sudden there's additional material, (laughs) that's a great (laughs) feeling. I love that feeling. I had not thought about that feeling for years. And Carol brought that up, and that's just, that's magnificent. I love that. I love that feeling. And no one can do that anymore because you're two clicks on your phone away from finding out every single piece of of material, or you're going to stream it on, you know, Spotify or wherever, it doesn't happen anymore. But that I love. That's just a magnificent feeling. So thank you, Carol, for yeah, bringing that. Absolutely. Back. That's how I discovered the gift recordings. By the way, it was literally in the racks at Borders Books. Hey, remember Borders? <laughs> that was a thing once. I had bought different class, and then this is hardcore, and I just saw this one, and I think I got Countdown at the same time, and I was like, I was not impressed with that, but this I was blown away by. I was like, the the classic, find it in the racks, you didn't know it existed, and it yeah. was a wonderful thing that just came into your life out of nowhere and so yeah it's amazing that they had it at borders i had to go to like the hip you know record store in manhattan uh where they would normally just judge you for what you were buying but i remember (laughs) going there and looking for pulp albums and getting like a nod of approval from the cool guy behind the counter and it was like yeah i'm listening to cool music that's right (laughs) i I didn't know the borders would had it otherwise that would really decrease the cool cachet (laughs) Uh, Some of us didn't have cool record stores. Some of us lived in the suburbs, and so we had to make do with what we could. Yeah. But what do you think of these songs? I mean, Jeff, you covered a whole lot of of, uh, of the songs. I think you covered all the songs, actually. But you're right. This is a huge step forward to me from Separations, just in the sound, the confidence behind the songs, I think both in the songwriting and in the uh, in, in the vocal style, the vocal delivery uh, of Jarvis uh, Cocker. And look, the, the melodies are so much better. So much more tuneful, uh, even with kind of keeping those cheap synth sounds that would weave their way through these tracks. Um, uh, uh, Babies is, is, is a great song. It would make its way onto his and hers. 
Uh, and again, when you go back and discover things, there's a uh, uh, artist, uh, Mike Viola, who does a lot of work now with Ryan Adams, actually, and he had a, a brief uh, career, kind of a solo career, too. There's a song of his called Tough Hang, which has the exact same uh, guitar intro as Babies, and it has that same melody through the track, and I have no idea if he meant to copy it or borrow it, but uh, in my mind, he did. So that's what Babies reminded me of uh, uh, initially. But that's a, that's a brilliant song with that synth line making its way all the way through. Well, that was all right for a while, but soon I wanted more. I want to see as well as here, and so I... I hid inside her wardrobe And she came home round the fall And she was with some kid called David And from the garage of the road I listened outside, I heard her Style of rock, it's one of the. I don't always dig the spoken word pulp songs, and there's usually a mm-hmm. couple, you know two or three an album maybe where Jarvis Cocker gets gets real down low in the register and delivers the spoken <laughs> word. It doesn't always work for me. I think this is one where it works pretty well, mainly because it's married to this really wonderful guitar line and the, and, and the echo of synthesizer through through it, and uh, Rasputin too, which would also end up. On, on his and hers, stacks is a simple poppy song. That I don't think was I don't think it was possible. Perhaps previously in Pulp's career, it ended up on on these gift recordings. So it, yeah, it's a big big step forward and, and would be an introduction to I think with what would or to what would come next. I love this album. I love the gift recordings. I the only song I could live without is Sheffield Sex City. I just I agree. I, I always think there's like one song on every pulp album that's just like, what is that song doing here? And that's the song on this album for me. Um, but I love I love OU, like Jeff was saying. I think that's such a great song and uh, so different. Um, Babies and Razzmatazz, obviously. And the Inside Susan is just, it's it's clever. It's like a really interesting um, trio of songs. And I, I really enjoy that. And of course, this all leads up to uh, what is the big breakthrough, universally seen as the big breakthrough, certainly the big commercial breakthrough for Pulp. And that is His and Hers, 1994. It's the first time they put out an album it was not only a good album, but was received as such at the time and became a huge commercial success. Um, there are a bunch of uh, you know big singles on this record. Uh, most of them are uh, – two of them were released in advance, Babies and then Razzmatazz, which is used as a bonus track on the American version. I remember my old copy of it. Uh, but there's also just – you know, they they work both in rock and in dance. There's a song on this album called Pink Glove, which I think may in some be <laughs> – Pink Glove, to me, uh, may be the ultimate pulp song, uh, certainly the ultimate combination of everything they brought in terms of the swirling miasma of like electric guitars. This is probably Russell Sr.'s greatest moment on guitar. And also you know, synthesizers just you know, in the background playing you know, almost subtly. This is not a big part of the mix, but this incredible lyric from Jarvis Cocker to an ex-girlfriend you know, all these songs, these pulps, a lot of pulps' greatest songs are definitely Cocker speaking to one woman or another, whether it's the same <laughs> one or it's a whole host of women who turned him down because he was a failed rock musician who, frankly, looks a little bit goofy. Uh, who knows? 
But there's, you know, that great lyric where it's like, you know, have you lost your lip gloss, honey? Oh, yeah, now nothing you can do can turn them on again. There's something wrong. You had it once, but now it's gone. And then there's that lyric about, yeah, you feel such a fool for laughing at bad jokes and putting up with all of his friends. And then what are they going to say when they run into you again? Oh, it's so brutal. Your stomach looks bigger and your hair is an S and your eyes are just holes in your face. And it rains every day. And when it doesn't, the sun makes you feel worse anyway. Oh, and then he goes back into the chorus. That is the moment where Jarvis Cocker became not only a great, you know, they put together the first great musical track on OU, but Lip Gloss is the first great combination of brilliant music and a brilliant lyric coming together into a moment that's basically one of the most iconic pulp songs of all time. This entire album is maybe my favorite pulp album. Uh, I think every pulp album has maybe one song or another song that I might discount, I might leave off. On this one, I think David's Last Summer, the last song on the record, is mm -hmm. probably the one I, I care the least for. But every other song on this record has something truly great about it. Pink Glove, Do You Remember the First Time? Uh, Joyriders, which is just a song about literally, you know, almost it's, it seems like a bunch of vaguely threatening hooligans coming up to a, a, a middle-aged couple and saying, hello, mister, we just want to borrow your car for a little fun. And that sounds really threatening, even though Jarvis Cocker is like the least threatening person in the world. <laughs> he does a really good job of sort of capturing this, this sort of sense, senseless and meaningless thrill-seeking of like, you know, people kicking around some, you know, desolate post-urban wasteland like Sheffield, England, and nothing to do. Um, happy Endings, Someone Like the Moon is a deeply underrated track. And the other thing I will say about his and hers is that uh, all of these classic era pulp albums, his and hers, Different Class, and This Is Hardcore, were all re-released as sort of deluxe editions, two CD deluxe editions. Mm -hmm. I think they're all pretty... They're all pretty must-hears, but the second disc of his and hers is probably the most obligatory of them all because every single thing on this second disc is nearly as good as what was on the first disc. You've got incredible B-sides like Seconds, which I think is as good as anything on the album. You've got BBC Session songs um, uh, that were never otherwise released on albums like You're Not Blind and Live On and You're a Nightmare. You've got this really great song called Your Sister's Clothes, which is uh, – I, I don't even want to give away how weird it is, uh, the <laughs> obsessions that Jarvis Cocker has when it comes to, you know, hanging around with like women who don't really know how to be women yet. It's, you know, uh, he conveys some very uncomfortable truths about young girls on the verge of becoming young women uh, that very few men are capable of even thinking in terms of much less putting into words. And even the so-called demos aren't really demos. They're fully fleshed right. out band recordings that – just for whatever reason, weren't re-recorded for the album sessions. His and Hers is a great album, maybe their best album. The re-release is even better than that. I unreservedly recommend this record to every single person in the world. 
Yeah, it, it's it's again a big step forward from the the gift recordings. Uh, a couple of songs make it on Babies, makes it on Rasmataz. Rasmataz, the spiteful, bitter lyrics that Jeff kind of alluded to at uh, Jarvis Cocker's best uh, sort of lyrics are those spiteful lyrics. Um, this is where I most clearly hear them, I don't want to say aping, but uh, there's a lot of Roxy music in, on his and hers in my mind when I, when, I hear the, uh, when I hear the songs. Joyrider is the very first track, the heavy guitar riffage in there, which you don't always hear on, on pulp tracks. Um, do you rem- remember the first time I listened to that and then I asked, you know, why would this not be a hit, especially considering the environment into which it was released? In the U.S., uh, where definitely maybe was was happening for Oasis, and Blur was happening a bit too, and yet it wasn't uh, here in the U.S. It hit, but you listen back, it's like, why wow, these keyboards are just shimmering in the chorus, very beautiful. Uh, you know the lyrics; uh, it's a very good set of, of Cocker lyrics uh, for. Do you rem- remember the first time too? And just why would this not be a hit? And as Jeff mentioned, the, uh, the the bonus disc of the deluxe edition, a lot of good stuff there. You're not blind, which I think Car- uh, Cocker himself even said is basically just a baby's rewrite. And it's a good one, though. In in fact, I think that the chorus itself might be even hookier than Babies, which is saying quite a bit. The Boss is one of the uh, deluxe yeah. tracks I also enjoy with this stuttering chorus and this propulsive guitar line. Very good stuff. His and Hers is, uh, I don't know if it's going to make, I don't, no spoilers, not sure it'll make my, my two albums, but it, it's awfully close and a decent place for any uh, pulp person to start. Ironically, the only song on that second disc that I don't think is that great is the title track, His and Hers, which was bumped to a B-side, and it's, 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 it's overlong and it's merely adequate. That's it. Everything else is just a gem, an absolute gem. Carol? The, um, you, you talk about that song, Lip Gloss, or Do You Remember the First Time? I think the theme, and while it is definitely getting back at vengeful ex-girl, you know, vengefully at ex-girlfriends, etc., but I think one of the main themes, and it is definitely prevalent in his and hers especially in the title track and other songs on the album is don't go live a boring regular life like Mm -hmm. don't go get married and have kids and get the his and hers you know set of everything and jarvis really looks down on that in a lot of the songs a lot of the girls that he's criticizing tried to have that normal relationship they go on you know apparently they were with Jarvis and having a really exciting time and then they (laughs) move on to the men that they're going to settle down with and Jarvis is like well look how it didn't work out for you like what happened to your lip gloss you know like um and and deliver you know and his and hers he's like deliver me from his and hers like I don't want this I don't want this like normal boring regular life um and as we'll talk about in the later albums he sort of 
gives up on that. But in his and hers, and then in different class, I think the the main motivation is a young Jarvis saying, you don't have to have the stayed boring life. You could stay with me, honey, and have like the exciting rock star life. Very self-regarding message in a way, but it, it also <laughs> seems to be a, an outgrowth, a direct outgrowth of what he must have felt like after a decade of being useless. This is a guy, by the way, who like literally was trying so hard to impress women that he famously once fell out of a second story building because he was trying to like stand on the window ledge to to be cool for some girl he was trying to impress. Ended up breaking up breaking both of his legs and having to perform in a wheelchair for the next several months <laughs> on stage. He somehow found a way to make it kind of dramatic, you know, him rolling himself around on stage in a wheelchair. But after all those years of trying so hard to like, you know, be that rock star that be that sensation that he thought he was, uh, all these lyrics end up coming out in, in, in this album. And then in the next one uh, as a commentary, I think on the, the decade of frustration and of waste and of I guess maybe a sort of decision that he'd made for himself and like you know here's a better way to live or here's the way that I chose to live and it has finally worked out for me and that gave him the confidence and the cockiness to preach remember this is a guy who actually ended up writing in a later lyric you know um, I am not Jesus Christ though we have the same initials so it, you know, if, if you're if you're willing to start a song on those notes, you, you've probably banked a lot of self confidence in the meantime. And of course, nothing will give anybody more self confidence than putting out one of the most important cultural artifacts of the entire decade, which is exactly what Pulp did on their next album, the well known, much beloved, and highly regarded Different Class. This is 1995. This is the album with the one Pulp song that you have almost certainly heard for sure if you've heard anything by Pulp, which is Common People, which we're going to talk about, uh, I think, a lot in the next few minutes. I'm going to let you guys go with this first. I will start only by saying this. I am not as big a fan of this album as everybody else. <laughs> I think that of their classic era albums, from his and hers all the way to We Love Life, this is my least favorite of Pulp's albums. I think it is anchored by a couple of incredible songs that everyone loves, and then a lot of the rest of it is a little tuneless and uh, second-rate compared to the best stuff on his and hers, This is Hardcore, and We Love Life. So now that I've made that incredibly controversial statement, I'll let other yeah. people speak up. I love Different Class. I think it's their best album, so I <laughs> do have to disagree with you, Jeff. Um, I think every song on there a pulp classic i don't have a song on this album that i think doesn't belong even like feeling called love which i feel like is would be the one where i'd say you know what is this song doing here ends up working somehow it's you know the room is cold and it's been like that for several weeks and he's talking and um he ends up saying something really positive which in every other album would turn into how miserable he is and how dark everything is and how horrible and even though the sound of the song is dark it ends up being this like what is this feeling called love and how amazing it all is. And it's sort of seeing the evolution of Jarvis into somebody who appreciates things, who appreciates relationships, who understands that he doesn't have to be alone for the rest of his life. And it, it's sort of all encouraging. I like different class uh, quite a bit. This is like the melodies and the hooks. Everything is catchier. Everything's a little more immediate. And I, I do think it's, from start to finish, a very good album from the very start. The, uh, the Miss Shapes 
which Jeff had mentioned earlier is kind of this uh, uh, revenge song for the the brainiacs in the world. They think they've got us beat, but revenge will be so sweet. Um, It really kicks up about two-thirds of the way through the song, carries this really great momentum and energy through it. I Spy is is a wonderful song. It's kind of the, uh, the more ugly side of Cocker's songwriting, very brooding, seething delivery, too. Um, I Spy is a very standout track. Disco 2000, both of you guys have mentioned, it's one of the best tracks, I think, in, in Pulp's discography. Uh, a sing-along track, as Carol mentioned earlier, a little bit, a very obvious uh, swipe of the riff progression from the Laura Branigan song, Gloria, but it works f- yeah, totally. fabulously. <laughs> yep, fantastic. Um, Something Changed is one more, or again, I'll kind of put a focus on the lyrics. It's just a great set from Cocker about fate, um, unknown turning points in life, how things can change when when you when you are unaware of the choices you're making, uh, and some ringing guitars in something change, which you don't hear a whole lot in pulp songs. And um, uh, I think it's the last song on the album too. Bar Italia is one of my favorites here too. A couple staggering home after uh, clubbing and seeing working people go by. I mentioned earlier that the Cocker lyrics are, are very evocative for me. I, he tells these st- stories in smart yet accessible ways, uh, these these narratives in songs. I listen to Bar Italia, and I, I think of the Twilight Zone episode, uh, Stopover in a Quiet Town, where these two just lushes who are completely hung over and don't know where they are and ends up, I don't want won't give away the spoiler for the Twilight Zone episode, but it reminds me of that. A lot of times, these lyrics that Cocker writes and delivers reminds me of other things. I love that. If we get through this alive, high, high, I'll meet you next week, same place, same time. Oh, move, move, quick, you gotta move. And, and from the bonus disc, which uh, uh, on the deluxe edition, my standout here is uh, Antiphone, which uh, is almost replacements-like in, in their track uh, Answering Machine, calling uh, a loved one or a former lover and, and not being able to get through and having to leave a message on the machine. It's a sad tinge to it. Uh, Antiphone is my choice kind of off the bonus disc as well. But uh, yeah, I think Different Classes is, again, for me, a step even above his and hers, the previous album. Well, listen, nothing I can say about different class is going to change its critical regard. It's, it's like me like trying to say that, yeah, you know, they, uh, you know that, that, that Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club <laughs> band, that's a terrible album. Nobody cares. This is one of the most beloved albums, probably the, the most beloved Britpop album of the 1990s, probably even beating out stuff like, you know, Definitely Maybe and What's the Story, Morning Glory. It has that high of a regard. Um so you can feel free to ignore what I'm about to say. But I'm going to start with the songs that I don't like first. I think there's far too many songs on this record that are half-written. The melodies did not seem to be entirely worked out. They're good ideas and good lyrical themes that don't actually tend to break too much ground but are still well executed but aren't set to good music. I don't actually mind Feeling Called Love, um, which uh, Carol pointed out. Or I guess we should call it F-E-E-L-I-N-G-C-A-L-E-D-L-O-V-E, whatever. Um, I think that one's okay. It's a mood piece. But Underwear, Monday Morning, 
pencil skirt live bed show that's almost half of the record that doesn't really pass by with much in the way of memorable moments uh and so for that reason alone i consider it to be the weakest of those sort of four classic era pulp albums but i am by no means saying this is a bad record bar italia as scott just said that's that's probably the best closing song that they ever did i think bar italia is just great his loping melody move 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 you gotta move just a really great melody from cocker who sings he's not really a natural singer he's more of a a declaimer but he gets a really Mm -hmm. good sound from his voice on that song disco 2000 i explained to you guys at the beginning of that show uh how much that song meant to me as a kid and i still love even now i kind of i listen to it now and i get pangs of nostalgia actually (laughs) i just remember what i was thinking when i was 16 years old in 1996 now i think i looked it up and um uh it's a shame but but altogether fitting that uh you know they have the chorus goes you know let's all meet up in the year 2000 won't it be strange when we're all fully grown be there two o'clock by that fountain down the road well, the Sheffield City Council actually demolished that fountain <laughs> that Jarvis Cocker was referring to in 1998 and replaced it with, like, a shopping mall or something stupid <laughs> like that. So there was no fountain to meet by, even by 1998. But anyway, she had gotten married and had two kids, so that's it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, she could even bring her baby. That's fine, you know? Right. That's that's a fantastic song. Bartalia is great. I think Sorted for Ease and Whiz is one that I like in theory more than I like in practice. It's their most, I think, their most played song. Uh, it's about kind of visiting. There's this great line in Sorted for Ease and Whiz. It's about going to like a rave and kind of getting a little bit wigged out at the entire scene. Um, but there's a great line where it's like, you want, you want to call your mother and say, mother, I can never come home again because I seem to have left an important part of my brain somewhere in a field in Hampshire. <laughs> and that song speaks to me or did at the time. I mean, the, the open air British music festivals, like that was it. You were on something and you're walking around and are you ever going home and you're not really sure. And this hollow feeling grows and grows and grows and grows. And you want to call your mother and say, Mother, I can never come home again Because I seem to have left an important part of my brain Somewhere, somewhere in a field in Hampshire, all right I, I just really felt like that captured the mid-90s, you know, Glastonbury's and Tea in the Park and other British festivals like that, which we really didn't have in America at the time. I think we have some more now. but Yeah, we have, we have Coachella now and stuff like that and Bonnaroo. <laughs> right. We did back then. Speaking, by the way, of iconic open-air British festivals, that kind of brings us naturally to Pulp's most iconic moment of all time, uh, which is Common People. Uh, for the people in the world listening to this podcast who might not be aware of common people i think it was recently voted the number one song of the 1990s uh, uh by you know both critics and fans alike in in, in various uk music you know rags and uh places that that tabulate these things it's a song that probably more than anything else from the entire brit pop era didn't just make a musical impact it made a cultural impact the story Jarvis Cocker just tells it so beautifully in the lyrics. You know, he says, you know, this is written basically back during the time when he was debating 
quitting pulp and sort of you know going to school instead as he was taking sculpture at St. Martin's College. And so he recounts just sitting next to some Greek heiress who's slumming in a bar next to him. She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture in St. Martin's College, and that's when I caught her eye. She told me that her dad was loaded. and In that case, I said, I'll have rum and Coca-Cola. And she said, fine. And then in 30 seconds' time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do what they do. I want to be with them. I want to sleep with common people like you. And it, she just goes on to tell this tale of like, oh, yeah, I took her out. I tried to show her what common people like. And then he just rounds on her in the chorus. <laughs> you know, he says, you'll never know what it's like to be a common person. You're play acting. Don't insult my intelligence with your attempts to you know, slum and be down here with us because you will never know what it's like. You will never know what it's like to be the kinds of people we are, to live with no prospects, to have to cut your hair and get a job and rent a flat above a pub. You know, you'll never have to deal with any of that. You, you, you stupid, spoiled heiress, uh, you, how dare you presume to know what people like me have to deal with. And he did, does it, it sounds, an ang it sounds angry. It's a very angry song. But it's also a joyous song. It's one of the really most. Joy I feel like he's sleeping with her the whole time as he's explaining. Oh, he's to her. That's the whole point. Is he takes advantage of her. He's like, yeah. It's like, well, you know, I'll, you know. She said, "I want to sleep with common people like you," and I said, "Well, I'll see what I can do." Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the humor. That's why it's angry, but the humor is so lively and it's so rousing too. He says, "You know, you will never know, understand what it feels to live your life without meaning or control and with nowhere left to go. You are amazed that we exist." and we burn so bright whilst you can only wonder why. So it's not an angry or defeatist song. It's a contemptuous song that's still filled with joy, and it spoke to a, the class situation in Great Britain, which is something, again, that Americans don't really understand. In America, yeah. in America, you can be dirt poor, and uh, you go to Harvard, do the right things, meet the right people, make enough money, and you're accepted as a member of the upper classes. We're a very mobile society. In England, it's really just not the same. People are expected, even now, even in 2017, 2018 rather, are expected to sort of stay in the place they were and sort of be who they were. Whatever your father did, whatever your family did, that's what you're right. supposed to do. That's a cultural situation that doesn't really obtain in America, which is why, even though this is one of the most important songs of the entire British 1990s, that was never going to be a huge crossover success, even though musically, God, it should have been. Even, even William Shatner knew that it was a great song for <laughs> crying out loud. Yeah, I, I think that um, that's a great point. That in Britain, I, I when I was living in Scotland, I got asked like what my 
father did a million times more often than I ever did in America. I never even understood that question until, you know, much later that they were trying to gauge where I was on the, on the class spectrum because it wasn't immediately obvious. Um, but, you know, in Common People, my favorite line is, we dance and drink and screw because there's nothing else to do. But it turns out there's nothing it doesn't matter what your class is, right? It's like that's what everybody's doing on every class level. So I, I, I thought that was a, a song that really could speak to a lot of people, even though it was supposed to be about a woman who didn't understand uh, people who weren't in her class. I, I think they're, the pulp ends up drawing the commonalities between all of us. This is a Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair. Carol Markowitz is with us at Carol on Twitter with a K, columnist at the New York Post and elsewhere. We talk about pulp on this week's episode. Subscribe for uh, new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in on Mondays, nationalreview.com as well. And so that moves us to the, the follow-up, which was labored. It took a while. Um, a key member quits in frustration over the uh over putting together this is hardcore which is the the the, the next album it's not as celebrated uh, as as different class i think it might be better though uh, i'm pretty sure i make the case this is my favorite pulp album uh this is hardcore uh jeff i would actually argue that you are well justified in thinking that this is hardcore is kind of the dark horse pulp album and it's also the one i think that a lot of like the hardcore pulp fans also agree like yeah this is secretly their best album i don't know if it's the one i'll end up picking at the end of the day <laughs> at the end of the show um but i can completely see why other people what the thing you got to understand about this is hardcore is that yeah different class comes out and like is it november of 1995 or something like that and um or october i believe of 1995 and then this is hardcore doesn't come out until 1998 it was uh three years in the making. It was an incredibly labored release. There was obviously drugs involved. I'm sure, you know, once these people make it big, cocaine enters the scene. Um, uh, but also it was uh, sort of the anxiety of trying to follow up uh, a record that in England, at least, had become sort of a landmark, a cultural landmark. It's like, oh, well, you know, crap, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are we supposed to do to follow this up? So three years and an increasingly sort of insular and paranoid worldview on the part of Jarvis Cocker uh, leads to a record that is explicitly pitched at the degradation of modern commercial culture. This is called This is Hardcore. And when he's talking about hardcore, he's definitely making a, a reference to hardcore pornography. It's not a vulgar record, by the way, but the front cover is like it's a, a nude model who's meant to look like a mindless, almost like a blow-up doll. Mm -hmm. All right? And this is a sound, this is a song, an album rather, that begins with a song whose lyrics are, this is the sound of someone losing the plot making out that they're okay when they're not. You're going to like it, but you're not going to like it a lot. <laughs> and the chorus goes like this. And the name of the song is called The Fear, as in you've got the fears. This is a British way of saying like you, you, you're paranoid. You, you, you're having a panic attack. Like this. Oh, baby. Oh, me 
the first song is about a panic attack. The title track is about, you know, you know, the hardcore degradation of sex, drugs, and culture. And uh, the lead single is about helping the aged, mm-hmm. which is probably my favorite song on this record. It's probably the first song written for the record. It's called Help the Aged. Um, just one of the most beautiful things that Pulp ever did. Funniest lyrics ever. You know, help the aged, because one time they were just like you, drinking, smoking cigs, and sniffing glue. Don't just put them in a home. They can't have much fun in there all on their own. And, of course, what he means, he's not talking about senior citizens. He's talking about himself, that in his 30s he feels like he's over the hill. Uh, you know, he says, you know, was when did you first realize it's time for you to take an older lover, baby? I'll teach you stuff, although I'm looking rough. Funny how it all falls away. It's one of these perfect moments where Jarvis Cocker leavens his own actual anxieties about getting old, becoming passe, and getting over the hill with hilarious wit, just sort of self-lacerating wit, and, and then a beautiful musical track. I just love the guitars on that song so much. I think the rest of this album really holds up uh, to most of that. There's maybe uh, one song on it, two songs on it that I think are kind of mediocre. I don't really care for Party Hard. I don't care for uh, Dishes. Those mm. are right at the beginning of the record, so yep. they're not that great. But then the rest of it is just a bunch of really well-constructed songs that are dark, that are not necessarily welcoming. There's no obvious single here, except Healthy Agent is kind of an obvious single, but everything else takes a lot of time to get into. Uh, but it's absolutely worth it. I think this is close to Pulp's best album, too. Every time I would go back and listen to uh, This Is Hardcore, I, I would like it more and more. It is, as Jeff mentioned, bleak, dark. Uh, the Fear is the first track on the album. It puts you in the mood. But it is so rewarding. Uh, Jeff just quoted like four song lyrics. I might do two more. The lyrics here are just incredible. I mean, Carker, Jarvis Cocker is a great lyricist. I think at his peak on This Is Hardcore. Um, there's a, a pair of songs near the middle of the album, A Little Soul and I'm a Man, which I think are both total knockouts. Um, a Little Soul finds Cocker putting himself in his father's shoes. He takes, you know, he, he assumes the character of his dad. Uh, you look like me, please don't turn out like me. It sounds gorgeous. The lyrics are bleak. We never got along that well, Everybody's telling me you look like me But please don't turn out like me You look like me But you're not like me, I know I had one, two, three Four shots of happiness I look like a big man But I, I only got a little so um, Even I'm a man, which again, the, the very next song Is kind of this glam stomp 
which is a little more upbeat, but the lyrics, you know, I learned to drink, I learned to smoke, I learned to tell a dirty joke. Oh, if that's all there is, then there's no point for me. Please, can I ask just why we're alive? Because all that you do seems such a waste of time. Um, there's a, your car can get up to 110. You've nowhere to go, but you'll go there again, and nothing ever makes no difference to a man. This is dark stuff. Uh, but man, it plays well. It plays well. And even the last uh, couple of songs, musically, sound a little more uplifting. They're a little brighter. But Glory Days, which you expect perhaps to be, uh, 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 again, the, the lyrics might match the name of the song, well, the Glory Days can take their toll. It's almost an anti-anthem. Um, and from the uh, from the deluxe disc, I have to mention... And Jeff had emailed about this uh, earlier, and I said, oh, yeah, I know this. I heard this. Cocaine Socialism is an amazing, amazing track. Did not make it on the album. I mean, what do you say? It's too dark? The whole album is dark and bleak. Cocaine Socialism, uh, Jarvis Cocker is is talking to a, a Labor Party politician um, in, in, in the lyrics of the song. And... Uh, and uh, there's, there's sniffing during the, the question, uh, are you a socialist, uh, where, where the cocaine would go. The full band sounds tremendous when they pop in about a minute into the song. There's such contempt in the lyrics. It would have been a perfect track to add to the album, but uh, uh, Cocaine Socialism is one to seek out from the deluxe edition. I think from start to finish, it's the finest pulp work. It's strange how the album ends with the day after the revolution, which is sort of meant to be like after all this unrelenting bleakness. Or yeah. like, oh, here's an upbeat song at the end. But I, I, I used to think it sounded forced. I liked that song a lot, incidentally. But I thought like the the levity of it. Oh, you know, the revolution is here. It's over. Bye bye. You know, it's sort of like you know, okay, you're, why are you trying to put a smiley face on a really unhappy record? Uh, but then the more you le- read about the lyrics, the more you think about the lyrics. You more you realize that it's kind of a commentary on everything he said. He says, you know, the meek shall inherit absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> if you stopped being so feeble, you could have so much more. The answer was here all the time. It's just how I missed it was a mystery to me. And he says, I, I waited, I waited for the day to arrive, and the revolution came, but now it's over. Bye-bye. So it's actually, in its own way, a very sad song. Because he's yeah. like, yeah, I was waiting for this to happen all my life, and then... I didn't even realize it here, and now by the time I, I do, it, it's all—it's gone, it's done, and there's nothing left to fight for anymore. And then it just fades away. And then the original version of the album, the, the, the little synth note at the end, went on for ten more minutes, which I don't understand the reason for. In fact, on my own version, I edited it out because I just didn't want to deal with that. <laughs> but it seems to be some kind of a commentary that I've never quite twigged onto. I don't know if Carol knows what it is. I—I I, I don't. Yeah, that—that like that. I could live with. Um, I was going to argue on here that This Is Hardcore is their most underrated work, but then you both <laughs> <laughs> um, I I love This Is Hardcore, although I, I I don't give it away, but not one of my favorite albums by them. But I, I always think that it's underappreciated. And I think that usually the, the follow-up to any big successful album will be underappreciated in this way. And I love disagreeing with Jeff because I love Dishes. I think Dishes is such a great song. It's the it's the natural follow-up to all the songs where Jarvis is all miserable and he's um, saying really nasty things to these women who are breaking his heart and he's saying how he's not going to live this conventional life and it's so boring and so old and so horrible. A man told me to beware said it was nothing 
Here comes This Is Hardcore, where he's just the man who stays home and does the dishes. And how was your day? And is that woman at work still trying to do your head in? And he is, he's demented. Just in that song, even, even This Is Hardcore, even the, the song about porn, it's in a very domestic way. He's at home watching porn and it's, it's almost normal and he isn't out doing crazy things and drugs have become sort of on the back burner. I think he had a very public very long time. And I think with this is hardcore, it's sort of, I, I think that's when he sort of cleaned up a little bit. So yeah, it, it, it's a, a more domestic Jarvis and a more normal Jarvis, despite the, the name of the album. Before we move on, uh, there's one other non-album song that I want to single out from this. This was actually on my version of This Is Hardcore, uh, the one that was released in America, but uh, was otherwise not on the original uh, CD, and uh, I think was actually officially released on the Great Expectations soundtrack mm -hmm. originally. It's a song called Like a Friend, which, uh, again, I will say is one of my top five pulp songs of all time. Uh, it's a song that begins with it's like a very kind of a slow ballad guitar, just playing simple chords in the background with some sensitive electric, you know, don't bother saying you're sorry. Uh, you know, every time I get no further, you know, it's sort of a romantic lament. You take up my time like some cheap magazine when I could have learned something. Um, and, you know, he sounds like, well, this sounds like almost a little bit pedestrian. You wonder, well, what's what's the point of this song? And then he gets to the uh, uh, right in the middle of the song. He says, you know, I've done this before and I'll do it again. Uh, come on and kill me, baby. When you smile like a friend, I'll come running just to do it again. And then it turns into this classic guitar and synthesizer pulp reverie that builds and builds and it has this declaiming lyric where Jarvis talks about like all the things that this horrible woman who's abused him all of his life are to him you know you're the last drink I never should have drunk you're the body that's hidden in the trunk uh, you're the party that makes me feel my age all these things are just brilliant little couplets talking about how this woman is toxic and terrible for him very appropriate for great expectations too actually if you know the novel or the movie um, but uh, and then it ends it's so you're all these terrible things so it's it's lucky for you that we're just friends and then it just dies <laughs> softly and then bam into this final collapsing reverie one of the most electrifying moments of Pulp's career again no idea why it was never used on the album my only my only guess is that it hadn't been finished in time for the record because if it had it would have been the appropriate conclusion to this is hardcore which in fact it was in the United States
on to the next release which would be the last release in uh, pulp's career we love life a new producer on board scott walker no not the wisconsin governor uh would be brought in and i know jeff likes this one i'm going to mention a couple of songs that jump off to me this is i mean i, I like this as hardcore so much i think it's uh, almost impossible for it not to be a step down in my eyes uh but i think it's a it's a good album i i don't think it's an upper echelon kind of one from from the from the catalog couple of tunes uh, that I want to mention. Bad cover version is really good. And you've got, uh, the, the video almost makes it, I mean, you've got the video, which is separate from the song, of course. But the video is like the send-up of, of live aid and all these, uh, you know, mass uh, gatherings of musicians come together for, for purposes, uh, for charity purposes. The song itself is good, though, too. It's it's a pretty accessible song from, by Pulp standards, uh, comparing a, 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 an ex's new boyfriend to himself and then mentioning other things that aren't quite as good, like the Stones since the 80s and off-brand cornflakes and late-era Tom and Jerry cartoons where they talk uh, bad cover versions. Uh, the Night Mitty Timperley Died, like that one, pretty hooky song. Sunrise, right at the end, an optimistic song uh, by Pulp Standards again. I used to hate the sun because it shone on everything I had done. Um, and then there's this like three-minute wall of noise, this crescendo uh, in in that song too. So there's, you know, it's a different production. The synths, which were so big a part of Pulp early on, now are pushed far to the background, hardly audible in many of these songs. And you hear a bit more of the guitar jangle, which again, previously was pretty far down and now is up in the mix. Um one more, I guess. Weeds. That snare drum, that marching shuffle of weeds and the, and the layers of acoustic guitars. Weeds, I think, is the first track on the album. I like that one a lot, too. So, I, you know, it's a step down, but I think there are some accessible portions of, of We Love Life that it's not by any means, I want to say an embarrassment, but it's by no means a, a subpar album. It's a good effort from uh, the band and Jarvis Cocker. I think this is their most underrated album, and I think it's a really interesting way for them to go out because it feels like they've come full circle in a way. Ironically enough, you know they they made it big in in the late '80s and mid '90s as a very synth pop band, synth based, dancey stuff. And then where are we? We're we're back to very guitar based folk, uh, which is just like it. The first album from 1983. Somehow they made the unconscious decision to go back to where they began in the first place. Uh, I, I, the most interesting thing about Scott Walker's production, uh, which I think is superb, uh, but is mostly interesting for the fact that it, he didn't really try to give it a lot of his normal Scott production, Scott Walker production touches. Uh, Walker is famous in his 60s incarnation for a lot of these very, you know, elaborately lush uh, string arrangements, mm-hmm. uh, very European continental style. Is very much pulp is very much indebted to them. Jarvis Cocker's entire sort of bearing and tone is very, very Scott Walkerish, which is obviously why he reached out to Walker to do this. Mm-hmm. That's not the sound we get on um, on We Love Life at all. Again, it, it's much more guitar based. Uh, it's much more, I think, accessible in a lot of ways. I think the problem with We Love Life. 
uh, is that it has some of the most compelling instrumental music, instrumental tracks, band performances of the group's entire career. And to that, I, I give a huge amount of credit uh, to the band and to, to Walker. But it has some of the weakest melodies of their career. It feels like Cocker kind of checked out after he wrote a lot of the lyrics of these songs. There's one track in particular that I I love, despite the fact that it has a really weak melody called Bob Lind, The Only Way Is Down. That's one of their best instrumental performances. It's really exciting. It's really unexpected and very much a throwback to the early 80s of the band. But the melody is just so phoned in. I kind of wonder why Cocker didn't bother to sit down and work a little hard on that because the lyrics are good. The music is spectacular. The melody is just not making it. The recreation of the suits that made you shine of one you fit. And it's so, so fine. Get it out of your mind as long as you find your way back in. Um, other than that, I'm surprised that you didn't mention The Trees, which is my yeah. favorite song on the album. Uh, the well, trees I, I kind of knew you were going <laughs> to yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard to miss that. <laughs> it's funny. The thing about that that actually sounds genuinely Scott Walker-like is that opening, those opening uh, strings. Yeah. Uh, but that's a sample from some other song, actually. It's it's not something that they arranged for the record. I believe it's a sample they plucked from somewhere out of the ether. I can't remember well. But I love that song. Uh, again, just you know, the 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 wit, the sort of resigned wit of the trees. The trees, those useless trees, produce the air that I am breathing. Those trees, those useless trees, they never told me that you're, they never told me that you were leaving. So he, he's cursing the forest around him because it's where he fell in love and where he ended up losing his love. And it seems like an interesting move to sort of take it out on nature around you, which is not really nature's fault. But it is funny that like you, you go and walk in these places that sort of take you back. They remind you of, of moments in your life and then you feel that pang of regret or, or you know, pain and loss. Uh, that shouldn't in any way be related, but you take it out on the place where these things happen to you. Uh, that's a really clever way of getting you know that emotional association down into a lyric. I love that song. I, I think almost everything on this album is good. I can honestly only think of one track on the entirety of We Love Life that I think is a little bit substandard, and that's The Bird is in Your Garden, which is not bad. It just has nothing really going on with it. I even like Wicker Man, which is one of these sort of long narrative, yeah. Jarvis Cocker narrative things, where he tells a really long story about falling in love and walking around, you know, downtown Sheffield and all these, these sort of time and place. You know, we used to jump into the river here, or we were told that people used to jump into the river here. Sort of, you know, you know, picaresque story, but it works. It's compelling. The music underneath it is really compelling. I think this is a, a really underrated album. Uh, the only thing that lets it down is the fact that Cocker didn't rise to the occasion when it came to writing melodies around other great music that was on the record. I like this album, but it isn't among my favorites. I, I, when I think about it, I, I think, oh, I, I like We Love Life. You know, I love that um, the the title reference is it's a nine eleven. You know, the We Love Life because it's a quote from a a terrorist saying We love death the way you love life, and um, this is you know Pulp saying We do love life, and I really wanted to like it more than I did. I think that. I, I like the trees actually. It reminds me of live bed show in a 
<laughs> talking about an inanimate object that has such an effect on your relationship. A lot of the album does speak to me and it really, I, I do listen to it occasionally, but it's not the pulp album that I reach for when I'm feeling pulpy, you know, when I want to hear pulp, <laughs> I'm never like, oh, we love life. It, I, I, I tend to reach for other albums first. And it's funny that this is the album they went out on. It's like, it took so long for them to make it big. And then they finally do a different class. And then they only produce these two more albums. And this one, almost like is a departure from everything else in such a way that I, I thought that they would have one more that would maybe come back around to like a his and hers type style or, or different class. I thought that they would end on something more like that. And I keep expecting them to do that, but it looks like I'm out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Political Beat, Scott Bertram and Jeff Blair and Carol Markowitz with us this week talking about pulp. And that's the end of the pulp discography, which means we are at this point of the show where all three of us deliver to you, the listener, a list of two key albums that uh, you all should own from our band and five key songs for you to hear. And we always allow our guests to go first. So, Carol, the floor is yours. So my two favorite albums are Different Class and His and Hers, in that order. Um, and it's funny because my absolute favorite song is one that Jeff mentioned he doesn't like, so we're in keeping with our <laughs> disagreeing. Uh, Underwear is my favorite pulp song. <laughs> I think it it sums up everything for me. It's the way the, the lyrics are just so Jarvis, like thinking about a woman that he's into in her underwear and some other guy's room and how she couldn't stop it now, even if she wanted to, because things are a go and um, him just imagining what she's thinking and feeling. And obviously how much she still wants Jarvis is, is, is just classic to me. And the music in that song is so wonderful. If you could close your eyes and just remember, that this is what you wanted last night So why is it so hard For you to touch him For you to go Give yourself to him, oh Jesus I couldn't stop it now There's no way to get out It's standing far too near And how the hell did you get here Sending naked in somebody else's room I'd give my heart Um, my second favorite song is the one you you mentioned. Uh, do you remember the first time? I I thought I'd get some, um, you know, lack of cred for picking a song that's on a soundtrack, but that song just 
lyrically and musically does it for me. It makes me want to dance. Reminds me um, of either being that person who comes over and smokes all the guy's cigarettes and then leaves him or, um, you know, having a guy come over and smoke all my cigarettes. So I, I, I feel like I really related to that one. Uh, and should I be going into my five favorite songs yet? Or should yes, I be leaving please. It the- nope, continue on. <laughs> I'm sorry? Continue on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Sylvia, from This Is Hardcore, is my third song. Um, I love that song. I think it's it's really clever. It's a very Jarvis-y song. Um, way, it, it reminds me of um, uh, the song on Different Class where he writes, a song two hours before they met and this is a similar situation where he's talking about Sylvia to somebody who is not Sylvia and he's saying you remind me of Sylvia and stop asking me why I keep mentioning this Uh, I think it's really funny Um, Sorted for Ease and Whiz is another one of my favorites I I really love the I think it really captures the standing in a field, um, listening to music that you love, but also being on drugs and <laughs> wondering when you're ever going to come down. You know, do you ever come down? Um, and five underwear. Do you remember the first time sorted for using was sealed uh, like a friend? So. All right, I will take it from here. Let's see the two albums that I will recommend. Uh, I think of the back-to-back different class and uh, this is hardcore and that shouldn't be a surprise I guess based on how much praise I heaped upon it during our discussion of the album uh, I think both of those are uh, different classes probably the, the the finest musically I think the band has been in terms of uh, its melodies and hooks and, and its catchiness and I think this is hardcore might be the very best that Cocker has been in his lyrics so Two good ones, different class, and this is hardcore. In terms of the songs, I'm going to go back to uh, Babies from uh, His and Hers or from the uh, the GIF recordings, if you if you wish. Either way, it's got a huge hook, great guitar uh, synth line, and kind of the very first time I think everything plopped just right into place and putting together a, I don't want to say marketable, but putting together a, a very appealing uh, song to the masses, so to speak. Do you remember the first time? Also, uh, his and hers track. Again, the, the times I listen to this, I think, why was this not a hit? Why was this not uh, something that was successful in the U.S.? Uh, the keyboards are beautiful on it. Just a great, great song. Disco 2000, I think, for someone who was not kind of ingrained in, in pulp as, as having grown up with it or having appreciated it as it was being released, is a, a good place to, uh, to kind of start and, and get into. Sing-along quality to it. Uh, lyrics about meeting a crush years later in the year 2000. Uh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going back and forth with some of these last ones. I will put a little soul on there from This Is Hardcore. I think that's probably the highlight track for me from that album. And um, I guess I will throw on Cocaine Socialism from the, the deluxe track or the deluxe album, the bonus uh, album from This Is Hardcore. I think Cocaine Socialism is just about peak pulp everything operating uh, at its best the band sounds fantastic the lyrics are wonderful everything just chugs along at a tremendous pace it's a great song uh cocaine socialism would be my fifth now get down to the gist do you want a line of this are you a
Jeff, over to you. Hmm. I have really been torn this entire time about which two I will choose. Uh, I will say I'm going to go with a bit of an uncharacteristic pick. I'll say my first choice is intro, the gift recordings, which is the first time that Pulp became Pulp as we know them. Their first early singles prior to his and hers. Uh, uh, babies made it onto his and hers. The rest are B-sides or non-album singles. Uh, it contains some of their best music. It's also uh, delightfully light and, and maybe a little earlier and, and breezier uh, version of their classic sound. Uh, once we get to different class and to this is hardcore, they become a little heavier and a little more layered. And so, you know, as best exemplified by Babies, you have that really light, lovely, floaty, early 90s synth sound uh, that was, I think, one of the most appealing eras of Pulp's entire career, which, of course, takes me to His and Hers, which is my other choice. So it's their first of their big, you know, four uh, classic era records. I, I think his and hers is the best record that Pulp ever did. I think this is hardcore is the other one that would have maybe made my list. Uh, and it was tough to choose between hardcore and the gift recordings, but I think his and hers is the obvious choice as one of the two important Pulp albums. There really isn't a bad song on this record, except maybe David's last summer goes on for a little bit too long. Everything else here is the sound of, you know, the the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis and you never would have expected after it being sort of a homely inchworm for all these years that it could turn to turn into something so beautiful and glorious um as for my five songs uh those are actually pretty easy the first one is OU gone gone i still think it's one of the best things that pulp ever did it's the beginning basically you could put a put a peg in it right there that is the beginning of their classic era with OU uh my second one would be lip gloss there have been few choruses more utterly titanic than the chorus to Lip Gloss, just you know, in terms of the screaming guitars and the synthesizers in the background and the way Jarvis just sings those really, really powerful but also sad lines. Uh, then third is one that I'm stunned that nobody mentioned yet. It's Common People. Mm. Common People was the song of the entire 1990s for an entire nation. It was an era-defining record. It still makes me, every single time I hear it, want to move I want to go back and play it again. I want to focus on every beautiful syllable that Jarvis curls around his lips, every single chintzy little keyboard strike from Candida Doyle. Everything about that record is titanic. It was designed to be the epical hit that it was, and uh, it deserved every ounce of success that it has. Um, my fourth track would be Help the Aged. Mm -hmm. uh, which is both a incredibly witty and sad commentary mm -hmm. on Cocker's sense of despair at being overtaken by both age and the trends and the times, uh, but also just a beautiful melody and a really wonderful band performance as well. I think it's the best song on This Is Hardcore. And then finally, I'm going to agree with Carol that Like a Friend, uh, which is a B-side or a, a, an album sort of spare track from the This Is Hardcore era. Uh, that was released on Great Expectations, the soundtrack to that sort of Gwyneth Paltrow movie that isn't very good. That is a song that is an all-time classic for Pulp, uh, one of their five greatest songs and a song that anybody who's mildly interested in this band should hear. Uh, go get it tomorrow. So, yeah, those are my five. And there we go. That concludes the Political Beach look at the uh, career of Pulp. We thank our guest, Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and elsewhere. You can follow her on Twitter at Carol with a K, K-A-R-O-L. Carol, thank, thank you so much. much. Thank Th you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Hope you had a, a good time with us today. 
really fun. And uh, Jeff, we start 2018 on, on a high note. We have to keep up this level of performance. This could be tough. Ah, uh, I assume that we will rise to the challenge. <laughs> uh, my name is Scott Bertram. You can find Jeff, by the way, on, tw- on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram. You can subscribe to our feed. New episodes on Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, right over there at NationalReview.com in the upper left-hand corner, in that click-down menu, you can find podcasts. And everybody's podcast is listed there, including Political Beats. Find all our old episodes and feel free to head back to our archives to find things we've discussed before. Once again, this has been a presentation of National Review. This has been Political Beats. Political Beats.